Well, we've been talking about just last week, and uh, it was the first week, and so this is our second week in this series. We've been talking about what it means to be uh, part of the church. And when we introduced uh, the topic last week, when we said, said that our entrance into the church comes as someone is converted. Individual people are saved out of slavery to sin and are reconciled to God through the death of Christ. Uh, They're united to Christ, but God takes every believer, and not only does he unite them to Christ, but because they're united to Christ, he then reconciles them to one another as well and unites them to the church. And so the Bible uses an image, uses lots of different images for the church. One of the images it uses is of stones that are built up, that are being built up to make part of a building. Jesus is the cornerstone of the building, but then Jesus takes all these, let's call them bricks, and he forms them into, this is from Ephesians 2, into the household of God. He says there that the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And so it's really an image of God applying mortar that holds us together. And in doing that, it says that we are being built together into a dwelling place for God. As we are built together, that's where God dwells. A dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The Spirit is doing that work. So those are just amazing, beautiful images about how God creates and forms and joins together the church. He's a master builder, a master craftsman. And all of that starts at conversion. As our Lord gives different individuals new hearts, Through the Spirit, it's to those individuals, he says, from Ezekiel 11, verse 20, they shall be my people and I will be their God. So, hear that. He takes individuals, converts them, and he says, as these people together now, they shall be my people and I shall be their God. See that? The one become many. All the the new heart people, as I called last week, these heart transplant people, together are the people of God. In the New Testament, they're called the church. The church is not so much a building. In fact, it's not a building. The church is the people of God. Well, if salvation and conversion is how we get to be known as the church, is there some kind of way, is there some kind of ceremony that signifies that someone has become part of the church? That someone has come into the family of of faith. We have ceremonies for all kinds of things. For example, in education, there are ceremonies when people graduate out of one institution, when they, when they get a diploma or a degree of some kind. It's a ceremony. It's a ceremony that signifies an accomplishment of some sort. When you get your grade 12 diploma, for instance, it signifies that you have made it through our secondary education system. That's quite an accomplishment. Twelve years, you've done it. Now, in our day and age, they didn't have this when I was in high school, but now they have ceremonies all the way along, before someone actually graduates. Now, I'm not sure what a six-year-old actually accomplishes when they have their kindergarten graduation. You know, maybe they're Experts at, uh, at building blocks, or maybe they're experts at counting by twos and tying their shoes. Uh, 
or maybe they're able to tell time. But at the very least, kindergarten graduations show that we as humans like to recognize someone's accomplishments, even when they're very young. And we have ceremonies to commemorate those accomplishments, public ceremonies of recognition. We do the same thing when people become citizens of our country. We have citizenship uh, ceremonies where new citizens of our country will take an oath signifying that they are now Canadian. Well, is there a way in which the church can signify that people have been converted and by nature of their conversion have become citizens of, in the words of Hebrews 11, a better country? How does a Christian make public that they have received new hearts and that they have made a profession of faith in Christ? You might have seen big evangelistic campaigns where people are told that they need to become Christians by making public their decision to accept Christ. And so they're told to to come forward and to walk the aisle to receive Christ. This is sometimes called the altar call. And really, there's nothing wrong with those kinds of things inherently. I I sometimes worry that they could lead to high-pressure decisions which could lead people to wrongly assume that they're saved, which leads to false conversions. And false conversions are dangerous because now you have people who think they're saved on the basis of something they've done, something they've done. And I say that's dangerous because people who think they're saved when they really aren't saved no longer think that they need a savior. And so altar calls aren't necessarily wrong or anti-biblical. They're just not in the Bible. But there actually is a way that's in the Bible where people can publicly signify that they've become Christians and to identify that they have joined the church. There actually is a way to signify that salvation has been, if you want to put it in the words of accomplished. It's a ceremony of accomplishment. And that way, that ceremony is baptism. Only it's not their own accomplishments that we're celebrating. It's God's accomplishments through Christ in their life as he's given them new hearts. We see people baptizing and being baptized throughout the New Testament, starting with John the Baptizer baptizing people in the Jordan River, including, and most notably, he baptizes Jesus himself. And that baptism, among other things, was an event signaling, signaling the start or the initiation of Jesus' public ministry in those three years before he'd eventually die on a cross, get raised, and uh, ascend back to heaven. But then, baptism for converted sinners really starts becoming normal practice right after Jesus leaves. Actually, just before he left, Jesus tells his disciples to do exactly that. He says that in his last instructions, which also form the last words of the Gospel of Matthew. If you have your Bibles, again, turn to Matthew 28. Just last two verses there. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Their role, he's talking to the 12 here, or the 11 by this point, their role as soon-to-be leaders of the church was to make disciples. 
In other words, Jesus wanted to, them to tell people about him and then call people to conversion where they too now would become disciples, would become followers of Jesus. But once these people were saved, once they were disciples, the very next thing is to take those converted sinners and do what? Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And so we see the pattern there. One, they become Christians, become disciples. Two, they get baptized. Then once we get to the book of Acts, where uh, the expansion of the church, the growth of the church is right there for, for all of us to see in our Bibles, we notice there how the disciples carry out Jesus' words from Matthew 28. How do they follow this command? Well, we see it there, how they make disciples and baptize them. So if you haven't already, flip over to Acts chapter 2. The context here is the very beginning of the church. This is where it all started. In chapter 1, Luke, who is the author of this, we could call it a history book, recounts Jesus ascending, going back to the Father. And then we have the disciples replacing uh, Judas, the betrayer. And they re- end up replacing him with a man named Matthias. Then in chapter 2, we have this amazing story of the promised Holy Spirit coming with great power. And we see that the gospel is heard in many different languages and, and the church just starts growing like crazy. Major expansion. It starts there in chapter 1, verse 15. It says that there were 120 people that had gathered in the upper room in Jerusalem. But when you get to chapter 2, we find Peter preaching the gospel in Jerusalem. And, and he really tells all the Jews there about how all of the Old Testament points to Jesus. And look up over at chapter 2 at the very end of verse 41. We'll do the rest of that verse right away, but the very end. It says, and there were added to that day about 3,000 souls. So on top of the 120, there were 3,000 more. And by the time you get to chapter 4, verse 4, it says that the number of men, only men, the number of men came to 5,000. And so there's amazing growth right there at the beginning. But go back to chapter 2, verse 37. After Peter finishes um, the very first church sermon, a bunch of people are convicted of their sins. And it says there in Acts 2.37, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the, the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? So they come under conviction and they want to know, what do we do now? Is there something we should be doing? Verse 38, and Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you. This is a call to repentance and faith. By the way, here it mentions only repentance. Last week in Ephesians 2, it talked about only faith and And in other places, like Acts 20, verse 21, it talks about repentance and faith as being necessary. And so so I think both are assumed to be the correct response. Genuine faith always involves repentance, and genuine repentance, we could say, always involves faith. 
But here in Acts 2.38, notice what Peter also says. He says, repent, but that's not it. Repent and be baptized. He also says, repent, then be baptized. What's the first thing they're called to do once they repent, after they repent? It's to be baptized. So in both Matthew 28 and now in Acts 2, we see that this is the first act of obedience for a new Christian. This is what everyone who becomes a Christian is called to do. Now, we could say a lot more about the meaning of baptism right here. But I just want to focus in today on one part of it. And that's the connection to the church. Baptism means a lot more than identifying with the church, but it does not mean less than that. Say that again. Baptism means a lot more than identifying with the church, but it doesn't mean less than that. So we're still in Acts 2. Look down at verse 41. It summarizes what happened there in Jerusalem as Peter preached. And it says, So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Just, just notice the steps again that make up the pattern for the early church. They received the word. They, they heard the word of God. They heard the gospel, and they received it. It said before they were cut to the heart. They came under conviction, conviction of sin. Then step two, they were baptized. They had a ceremony that showed that they had been converted to Jesus. But then it says, as they did that, they were added. They were added. So you have to ask there, if you're a good student of the Bible, added to what? Well, they were added to the list of people, this, this growing number of people that were converted. They were added to the church. They came to be known now as belonging to the church. They were included in, in a list. Mark Dever says that baptism, I quote, is the public initiation of the believer into the family of faith. It's the public initiation of the believer into the family of faith. And you can see the effect of that in verses 42 to 47. It, it, it just brought a whole new sense of, of togetherness and, one, and oneness. Look at Acts 2.42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings, distributing the proceeds to all as, as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And here's the summary of that. The Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being, what? Those who were being saved. Those who were being saved. They were together and had all things in common. Day by day, they, they attended together. They weren't just attending on the Lord's Day. They were attending day by day. They all of a sudden began to be, to be a part of church life. And they wanted to be there. When you are converted, you are placed by God into the life of the church where you naturally want to grow and to fellowship and to pray together, to, to share with each other, to eat with each other. You just naturally want to be together with other believers. 
And verse 47, the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. You see, the church is made up of converted and baptized believers who share the life of Christ with each other. That's the church. Converted and baptized believers who share life together. And baptism is the ceremony that pictures the initiation into the life of the church. It pictures that initiation. A converted person has gone through the steps of repentance from sin and faith in Jesus Christ. Now they're making a public declaration that they're really saying, I'm not part of the world anymore, but I'm now part of a different team. I'm part of this group known as the people of God. Where we live, this public initiation, if we want to call it that, isn't much of a big deal anymore. It seems like it's sort of become optional. Take it or leave it. In other places, places that are way more hostile to the gospel, they take this seriously. They recognize baptism as a command from Jesus, Matthew 28, 19, and they do it. Many times at great risk to their and even their family's personal safety. Yet in spite of the danger, I've read examples of people uh, secretly finding some water, a lake or a river or pool even, whatever it is, getting the church together and getting baptized. Making a public declaration like that says, I belong to the church. But it also says, I don't belong to whatever you came out of. I don't be- in a larger sense, I don't belong to the world anymore. In, in, in some countries, it's saying, I don't, I'm not a Muslim anymore. Um, might mean here, I'm not a Mormon anymore. And it comes at great personal costs. One thing to say that privately, but it's another thing to have a public ceremony. For many, it means being shunned by their families. But those people understand that Jesus wants us to draw a line in the sand. He wants us to be distinct. He wants us to distinguish ourselves. He wants us to go ahead and obey this command and make public our allegiance to him and to become part of the people of God. So I want to encourage those of you today that have not been baptized as a believer to obey God in this. If you've gone through the requirements for high school or a university degree, you don't really have to attend the ceremony in order to get your diploma or your degree. If you've done the requirements and you're not at the ceremony, they'll just send you the piece of paper, whether you're at the ceremony or not. It's optional to be there. But Jesus commands baptism for those who have responded to the call to be saved, those who have repented and believed. Jesus himself wants you to make public your conversion. And when Jesus commands something, I hope you understand already that it's not optional. Now I want to make sure you understand here that baptism does not save you. Let me say that again. Baptism does not save you. It is the public declaration of something that has already happened. But Jesus wants all the saved, all the believers, to be baptized. So it really doesn't make sense for someone who has believed in Jesus to refuse that command. Mark Dever again writes that there will never be anything that Jesus calls you to do that will be easier than baptism. Now that might sound like it flies in the face of what I just said about possible persecution in some places, 
but he just means that it's easy in terms of what we are called to do. All of Jesus' other commands are way harder to keep. Baptism is just find some water, get the church together, and make public what has happened in your heart. And so I encourage you to be baptized if you are saved. When Paul writes about the Christian life, he he just sort of assumes that Christians have been baptized. The beginning of Romans 6 is a great passage that talks about uh, the symbolism of baptism, and you'll see that symbolism pictured here this morning. But, But he just assumes that believers have already done that. He writes there, this is Romans chapter 6, verse 3, he says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ, into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? We were buried, that was past tense here, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. You see, baptism pictures the fact that we have died to sin and, and that sin should no longer have mastery over us. And that reality is pictured in baptism. And, and so he assumes there that these believers that he's writing to have done that. You'll see the same thing in Colossians two, uh, chapter 2. And so here's the deal. Just like the Bible has no category for a Christian who does not attend church, it also has no category for an unbaptized Christian. When people repent and believe, they are baptized. Now, there might be some time in between there. It might not happen right away because uh, as a church, we want to make sure someone actually is a believer. We want to do all that we can, so we have a couple of classes that they go through and things like that. But as soon as possible, when people repent and believe, they are baptized as a public confession of sin and a public profession of faith. And to, uh, sorry, I say a, a public confession of sin and a public profession of faith, and to identify them with the local body of believers. John MacArthur wrote an article a while back that I've kept in my files where he outlines possible reasons uh, people have not been baptized. He says there that one of the reasons is that they've never been taught about baptism. They just don't know. They're, They're ignorant about it. Another reason, he writes, is he simply calls pride. For one reason or another, they've allowed too much time to pass between their conversion, and they've even started maybe even to get involved in the church, and, and, and they're otherwise submissive to, to the authority of God's word in their life. MacArthur writes, I quote, It's understandably a little embarrassing to acknowledge that kind of failure, that you've been disobedient on something so fundamental for so long. But then he says, Better to humble yourself than to further extend that disobedience by remaining unbaptized, unquote. So if that describes you, I'd encourage you to humble yourself and be baptized. No one's going to think twice about it. No one's going to look at you with an air of superiority that, that, well, you know, why have you waited so long? I'd love to have to do a baptism service again in a few weeks or so, even if it's been a lot of years since you were saved, it's not too late to signal God's grace in your life to the church. We'd love to celebrate that with you. So just before we go into the water of baptism with with Jenna, I want to say something to us who are on the other end, those of us who have been baptized and, and now get to watch other people take that same step. 
or at least one other person this morning, as they, as they now tell us through this act that they have confessed their sins and that they have trusted in Christ, but also that they want to be identified with us here at Wetaskiwin Mission Church. And as they want to say, I'm one of you. What sort of things can you be uh, thinking about as we see Jenna get baptized today, as we observe other people getting baptized in the future? Well, as you witness baptisms, it's a little bit like uh, a wedding or a parent-child dedication. In parent-child dedications, we actually make you stand up and to say some vows in which you uh, will promise to support the parents and pray for the child. Uh, And so maybe you can think about this a little bit more like a wedding. By witnessing this, you're actually uh, silently, as you're sitting there, saying that you support the faith of those being baptized and that you are promising that you will disciple them, that you will help them as they seek to follow Christ. Then, as you watch today, think also of of the things that baptism dramatizes. It it pictures our sins being washed away. It pictures our being buried with Christ in his death. It pictures our being raised with Christ to newness of life. And it it also pictures, if you read 1 Peter 3, it pictures uh, the fact that we are going to pass through coming judgment safely. And relating to our life in the church... As we witness this baptism together as a church, it it should serve to increase our unity as a church as we're reminded of of who it was that saved us, uh, of who it was that keeps us, and of who it is that actually runs the church. It should bring an air of unity to us. And finally, as we watch Jenna being baptized and as we read her testimony, by the way, you have her testimony in your Uh, bulletins as an insert there. If you can't find it, just look on the other side of the insert. It might be there. But as we watch Jenna being baptized, as we read her testimony, we get to hear about Jesus and the gospel again. There's nothing better than hearing about the gospel. Uh, Paul Martin, a pastor from Toronto, said that in baptism, the church is refreshingly reminded that real people are really getting converted in real time. Love that. It's a refreshing reminder that real people are really getting converted in real time. We need that reminder, don't we? Sometimes we get so wrapped up in our, in our lives that, and, and that we forget that God is still saving people. Baptism presses that reality into our minds. And hopefully, coming out of that, we'll be spurred on to evangelize, to share the gospel with others. If God is saving people, he's surely going to save more. So let's go from here and make disciples. And as you do that, you can rest secure in the knowledge that God is with us. Behold, I am with you always, it says at the end of that in Matthew 28, 20. And with a reminder that God can add and wants to add to our number those who are being saved. I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to ask the musicians, they're going to come and sing again before we go into the water. So let's bow in prayer together. Our Heavenly Father, we, we're so thankful for your mercies. We thank you for the church. We thank you for the reminders of the great salvation that you have purposed and that you have accomplished through your Son, Jesus Christ. And we thank you for telling us in your word how we can how we can play out the drama of salvation through the waters of baptism. Lord, we want to carry out our part of Jesus' great commission right now 
as we baptize one of his followers in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We trust that this gives you pleasure. And as Jenna obeys your command and as the church carries out your instructions, Lord, may you be honored and glorified, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.